managing governance risks. The identification, ownership and monitoring of risks sits at the highest level of organizations and is the ultimate responsibility with the firm's board of directors. We hear a lot about ESG but tend to focus on the environmental and societal aspects of the acronym. However, risks arising from the G, governance, should be at the fore of directors' minds. But what do we mean by the term governance risks and how can it be effectively managed? I'm delighted to talk with Liz Linksweiler, who is the company secretary at Brightwell Pensions. Welcome to the BetterBots podcast series. I'm Dr. Sabine Demkowski, founder and managing partner of BetterBots. We make the boards of the most ambitious organizations more effective. Our mission at BetterBots is to contribute to creating better boards. We do this by providing clients with an evidence-based approach for board evaluations and board development programs. We created an innovative digital platform our clients can use as part of their fully facilitated external or for the internal board evaluations. To fulfill our mission, we give a voice to all who care about creating better boards. Liz, thank you so much for contributing to the Better Boards podcast series. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. We have a, a topic that deserves so much more attention. Why should boards and governance professionals be so concerned with governance risks? Well, I think because governance risks it's wrapped up in so many other risks, um, but I do think it deserves a bit of a spotlight. I think the first step is to define what governance risk means for your organization. In my experience, one of the key governance risks is around decision-making, and they tend to arise when roles and responsibilities in relation to decision-making are unclear. Generally, it comes up when delegations and powers are not sufficiently identified, captured, and defined. And it results in decisions being made by individuals or sort of groups or forums that might not have the right delegations in place or indeed at all. So why is this an issue? One of the main benefits of a robust governance structure is to ensure that a board maintains sufficient oversight of management and the day-to-day -day activities of the business. But if you... Um, are having individuals or groups acting outside of their powers, then it deprives the board the opportunity to challenge a decision or a course of action. And ultimately, directors are responsible for the business. So if there's a financial, a regulatory, or a legal breach, that oversight is particularly important. For firms that are heavily regulated or listed or a public interest entity, there's that added dimension of compliance. So there's a risk around making sure that the board can meet the expectations of the stakeholders and whether those are shareholders, regulators, or the government, if individuals are acting outside of their powers, that's going to have an impact on board oversight. If you think about your section 172 statement, like how can you as a director be sure that your firm is taking into account the impact on stakeholders if decisions are being made outside of your governance framework? You know, like any risk, the board needs to be sure that the right controls are in place to mitigate the likelihood of any risk crystallizing. And I think for governance professionals in particular, we play a sort of policing role for a lot of risk because we sit at the center of organizations. So we have this unique position to see and hear what's going on throughout the business. And so I believe we act as one of the most important controls around governance risk. Can you give us maybe some, to make it really tangible, some examples mm. of the key governance risks at the moment? I mean, absolutely. Obviously, it depends on the firm. 
but executive compensation is a really big one at the moment and has been for a number of years. Mm. You've seen increased focus in the corporate governance code, for example, on executive compensation. There's been increased reporting requirements and disclosure requirements in financial statements around how you're paying, how you set your pay, what your policy and approach is to remuneration. Diversity and inclusion increasingly, again, is becoming an area of focus, particularly for regulators in financial services, for example, on explaining how you are approaching diversity and inclusion, how you're increasing diversity in your boards and your executive management. I work for Brightwell and our biggest clients is the BT pension scheme. And the pensions regulator has also been looking at how they could influence sponsors to get more diversity on trustee boards. And so we're seeing this, obviously, from a pension perspective on a particular kind of area of risk for our trustees, because historically, trustees can't really influence who goes on their board to a certain extent. And so we're looking at how we can work with our sponsors to ensure that we can keep a focus on diversity when we're looking at refreshing our trustee board. So what are some of the red flags, if I'm now a non-executive director on a board, what are some of the red flags uh, I should uh, look out for? Um, I think one of the key things is, I mean, a byproduct of how the UK corporate governance framework operates is that there is information asymmetry between the non-executive and the executive directors on a board. And that just naturally arises as a non-executive. By proxy, you are not involved in the day-to-day -day of the business. So the NEDs really need to lean on their governance teams to ensure that management information provided for meetings are on time and that they're clear and they're concise. It's very easy to hide key information in a 30-page paper. Similarly, if boards aren't given sufficient time to read papers before a meeting, then you know it's very easy again to lose the kind of key messages. So at Brightwell, we spent a good deal of time working through our management information well ahead of appointing our first non-executive directors to ensure that we were providing data in as clear a way as possible. So we continue to evolve that information. We've recently changed our approach to reporting and asked those who contribute to board and committee reporting to put themselves in the director's seat. So to really think critically about what they would want to know if they were sitting outside the business, but still responsible for it. And the result for us has been MI that tells a story rather than just reporting. So I think generally, if your executives aren't taking the time to work with you as a director to ensure that you're receiving the right information in a way that's easy to digest, in my opinion, that's a huge red flag. As you know, we do board evaluations. That's the mm. hard thing what we do. And in almost every board <laughs> evaluation, as you know, the board papers are a sticky mm. issue. Yeah, regardless how much is written about it, They are too long. I mean, I know yes. several boards that five to 700 pages are not this uncommon. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned 30 pages, but I mean, it goes into the hundreds of pages. Information is not concise. Executive summaries are missing. It's not visual enough, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. How have you dealt with it? How do you make sure that your board really gets the essence and is really aware of all these governance risks? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's evolving. So I don't think you can ever really put a line in the sand and say, that's it, we've done it now. I've worked, as you would imagine, with a number of boards over the years. And there is always this tension between the business wanting to tell the board everything and the board just needing to get the information 
that is relevant and, you know, kind of clear enough for them to challenge and probe. Really simple things like, as you mentioned before, executive summaries, I think are key for papers because we suggest what we've done is we've done Brightwell and other places I've worked, but at Brightwell, we've done a huge amount of report writer training and we start with the executive summary. So we say, think about it this way. If you were in the lift with your director and you had to go from the 10th floor to the ground floor and they turned to you and they said, oh, I hear you're doing a paper on X and you've only got sort of a minute or two minutes to get those key points across. That's your executive summary. Talk about why this is coming here, what's important about it, what you want to get out of it. By the time you hit the ground floor, the director has a really good feel for what they should be looking for when they're reading your paper. So I think executive summaries are key. And we take time at the end of meetings to get feedback. So Denise, our chair, is very keen on taking time at the end of a meeting to kind of reflect on the meeting itself, but also the management information. Did we get the right information? Was this too much or too little? What would we like to see more of next time or less of next time? So it's never a line in the sand. It's always an evolving Mm. kind of process. And every company secretary I speak to and every director I speak to, there's always that challenge around management information and board packs. We have the situation on a board that we have executives, non-executives. How do we divide really the responsibility for the various risks between management and non-executives? So this is an interesting one, I think. I mean, in reality, the risks are owned by everyone. Ultimately, as everyone knows, the board is responsible for the risk appetite of the firm and how that links to the strategy. So in terms of the division of responsibilities, executive management should be monitoring and managing the risks on a regular basis and escalating them as appropriate. For the board, it's more about working with management to determine the appropriate level of risk and probing the executives on how they're managing that on behalf of the board. I think governance risk is absolutely, it's one of those rare risks where I think it's jointly owned between first line and the board, because ultimately governance risk sits with the board and it's up to them to kind of maintain that oversight of what's happening on the ground. I mean, what I see when I um, evaluate these boards, in the last years, we have seen an increasing number of risks, new Mm -hmm. risks, sometimes risks they didn't even had on the radar. How do you really make sure now that you capture all these risks? And it's a frequency of risks at the moment and the depth of these risks. I think the starting point is you look at what are your kind of enduring risks? So the risks that remain static, that are always there, and they will obviously vary from firm to firm. And then the second point is to look at your point in time risks. So things that are coming out of the woodwork, perhaps there's a bit of regulation coming down the pipeline that you know is going to impact your firm. So there is a point in time where this is going to crystallize for you and then it'll fade away. And then you've got what we call your sort of emerging risks. So things that are far, far into the horizon, but we could see potentially could be an issue for the firm going forward. So when you translate that to governance risks, what does it mean? Well, there's a bit of regulation coming out of the woodwork. For example, the UK government is doing a consultation on changes to the corporate governance code. So that will potentially be an emerging risk for a number of boards. So they'll need to look at what the potential changes are going to be and the impacts on the firm. And will that really have an impact on how they operate as a board? And sort of the more enduring risks will be things around, like I mentioned earlier, delegations of responsibility, decision-making. These things are always a sort of 
enduring risk because you need to constantly monitor that people are doing the right things within the firm and in the right places. We see a couple of new topics or relatively new topics. There's ESG, particularly on the environmental front, lots of things. There is cybersecurity. Mm. There is uh, artificial intelligence. <laughs> yes. Yeah. How do you capture all of this and how do you make sure that all of these topics receive sufficient attention on the board agenda? Well, I think the first thing to do is assess the importance of it for your firm and how much of an impact it will have. I mean, for example, something like cyber risk, that is an issue for every organization. So we, Brightwell, for example, have work quite closely with our IT team, our CTO and his team. But also we get in from time to time external support and advice on things that are coming down the pipeline, on things that we should be aware of, on setting the appetite around that for the board. So I think that really the first thing you need to do is start with, well, how relevant is this for my firm? And then you have to look at, okay, so if it is particularly of importance to us, then what is our appetite for it? How are we going to quantify that tolerance? And then it's about setting controls around it, giving it sufficient time on the agenda. You're right, because you don't want to end up with a board meeting that lasts two days because you have mm -hmm. so much better use of your committees. So if there's a particular issue or topic that perhaps needs a deep dive, then you could de delegate that down to a committee to do some of the more in-depth kind of probing of it and then escalate it back up to the board. Or alternatively, you set up standalone deep dive sessions. I've done this uh, at a number of places I've worked where you have a particular topic that is important and needs sufficient time, but maybe doesn't necessarily need to form part of a formal board agenda. Cyber is a really good example of that, where we take time to have standalone sessions on it for an hour or two hours and really get into the detail of it because it doesn't necessarily need a decision. It doesn't need to be formally minuted, but what it does need is sufficient time to go through it in detail. And so we kind of flex our meetings and what we do to meet the topic. And Liz, who does all of this? Is this something <laughs> that is on the shoulders of company secretaries? Because that is a big, big ask, because so many topics have to be covered. Yeah, I sound like an accountant now. It depends. Yes and no. So I think it's our responsibility as, as governance professionals to monitor what the board needs and to work with the business to make that happen. So absolutely, sometimes there will be topics that we will deliver training on, you know, particularly areas around corporate governance changes or report writing, that sort of thing. We kind of act as almost a facilitator between the business and the board. So we know, because we're in every meeting, we know what the board are asking for. We know where there are probably some gaps. And also we work quite closely with our chair and our board members to get that feedback from them directly. So they will say, we need more on this. And then it is up to the governance professionals to go out, find the time in the diaries, and then work with the business to pull something together that's going to be relevant and at the, pitched at the right level for the NEDs. No, that's, uh, <laughs> that's helpful. <laughs> um, it's a lot of work. You know, that's one of the things that makes this job so exciting is that interface between the board and the business and kind of greasing yeah. the wheels to make it all happen. So what steps can boards realistically take to ensure that these arising risks from governance missteps can actually be mitigated? 
It's a good question. I think the first thing is you need to make sure that you've captured it. So you need to identify what the risks are, the governance risks are for your firm. So is it executive compensation? Is it decision-making? Is it ESG reporting? So you need to make sure that you've really thought about those risks and how they link to your corporate strategy. You know, the usual basics of risk, you set an appetite around it, you look at your controls. And once you've put it on the risk register, once you've articulated it and captured it, it really then sets the task for the first line to monitor and report and escalate it as necessary. So it really keeps it on executive management's mind. And I think communication and clarity are key. So people need to know what they are responsible for and where those limitations sit. And again, I think you need to take time at the end of a meeting to reflect on what you've heard, what you've read, and give honest feedback on what's gone well and what can be improved. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the frequent recommendations we give. And I think a lot of boards forget because they overrun on agenda items and people Mm. are rushing back getting on trains or planes. Absolutely. Um, But this time is so, so important, this reflection point. So I'm really grateful that you flagged this. this. Now, sadly, we have to come to an end. What are the three things our listeners should take away from this podcast? I think first and foremost, be open. So feedback is the breakfast of champions. I love that (laughs) phrase. So sometimes, and sometimes it can be difficult to receive feedback on processes or ways of working that you as a business have spent a long time building up. But one of the best ways to build trust and strong relationships with your board and your other stakeholders is to really listen and take action on areas that might need improvement. I think secondly, don't shy away from being bold. So if there's an opportunity to be more efficient, then take it. You just need to make sure that there are clear parameters and adequate checks and balances around any delegations. And then finally, of course, I'm going to say this as a head of governance, um, (laughs) but trust your governance professionals. We are here to give boards and management impartial advice on how best to maintain the integrity of your governance framework. So by all means, lean on your teams because it's what we're here for. It is what we really thrive on. Fantastic, Liz. Thank you so, so much for contributing to the Better Boards podcast series. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. How can we help you and your board? We at Better Boards are always delighted to hear from you. If you have ideas about a podcast topic you would like to see covered, if you would like to learn more about our work, or if you would like to see a demo of our platform, get in touch. You can best reach us at info at better-boards.com. Thank you for listening.